For those who are new, we go through books of the Bible straight through. We're in the book of Matthew right now. I think we're on Sermon 4 of like 85. So uh, you came just in the right time. Uh, We have small booklets for Advent and typically have sermon booklets for the whole series to involve you in what we call road groups. And because of the Advent season, because road groups kind of take off December, uh, we will have those in January, and there will be a full study guide. And the first one, I think it's one of five, will take us all the way through Matthew 7, so you'll want to get one of those. But right now we're in Matthew chapter 2, and so I'm going to read the uh, first 12 verses. This is what God's Word says. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chiefs, chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written, by the prophet, O you, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had seen they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being Warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. I'm going to pray. In the My hope in, in praying for this sermon is that we just read a text that you, if you've been in the church any amount of time, not our church, but the church, you've heard that story a thousand times. And my fear sometimes is the familiarity of something causes us to dismiss some of the awesome truth that's in there very powerful truth. So I'm going to pray that the Lord lift the veil from our eyes and our hearts and show us something new, because he's the creator. He can create something new if he wants. So uh, I'm going to pray in that respect. Father God, I come before you. We bow before your throne. You are the king of the universe, the king of all, the ruler, creator of all things, and yet you are a father who invites us into your presence. And so we ask that you will be present with us in a very tangible way this morning. And Father, for a word that you gave us thousands of years ago, something that perhaps we've read thousands of times. I pray you'll make it new to us. That it will not just be the story of a few wise men who came from the east to offer gifts to our king, but it will be a call for us to respond in some way that we never saw coming. That's what our church is about, Father. You know that. Unexpected meetings with Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you will show us your son in a beautiful way today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, If you've been here for the last couple weeks, you saw that the genealogy is where we started, and the genealogy of Jesus was pretty scandalous, full of uh, polygamists and prideful kings and prostitutes. And then the conception of Jesus, which we talked about last week, was pretty shocking. The birth of our king gave rise to words like sexual immorality and shame and divorce was the first words they talk about when we're talking about the birth of Jesus. Pretty shocking. And now we see that the report of Jesus' birth actually attracted uh, what our pagan magicians or scientists, it troubled corrupt kings, and it nearly caused rioting in the streets of Jerusalem. If nothing else, we see through the genealogy and through this scandal that it is and through the birth itself and the conception prior to that, we see that chaos 
for lack of a better term, and I'm sure there are others, but chaos is not always a sign of God's absence. Sometimes it's a sign of his presence, exactly where he is. And if you take any time to read the Bible, you're going to find that God does his best work in the dark. His best work in the dark. And so the one true king, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, is born into a dark world ruled by men who think they're pretty special, who think they're kings and think their kingdoms are pretty awesome. And when men's kingdoms are confronted with the one true king, we all have our own little kingdom that we really like, that we are protecting, that we enjoy, that we fear losing. And when the one true king shows up and confronts his rule with what we think is our rule, there's only two responses. Reverence for God's rule and complete self-denial and surrender of your own. Or rejection of God's rule and what can only be described as self-destruction and destruction of everything else around you. And we see both those responses in chapter 2. I'm going to deal with the first today, and we'll see the second next week. So, to give you a little bit of context of what is going on with Herod and Judea at this time of, of history, all of Israel is under the rule of Rome, the Roman Empire. And the Romans had captured Jerusalem around 66, I believe, BC. So by the time Jesus shows up, he is, or Rome has been ruling for 70-ish years. And according to our historian, Luke, because you'll see that Matthew rarely gives um, time markers, at least not as much as Luke does. Luke's like, you know, the census went out, there's a decree by this guy, and you see that often because Luke's the historian. Luke wants the details. Luke wants to lay it out in a perfect chronological order. Matthew's not so interested in that. It's not his primary concern. But we see, according to Luke, that Rome is ruling Israel, and Rome is ruled by Caesar Augustus, a guy that was born Octavian. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you slept through history. I don't know. But... He was adopted by his uncle, Julius Caesar. Probably have heard of him. And Julius Caesar, I'm sorry, Octavian came to power when Julius Caesar was assassinated. Now, for a while, Octavian reigned with a couple other guys. And he later ended up defeating them and doing away with them through violence. And he assumes the position and gets the title of emperor. Now, having plundered all of his enemies, including Egypt, killing Cleopatra and that whole deal, or I just wiped them all out, he really didn't have many enemies left, it seemed. And so the people believed, all the Romans believed, that there was finally an end of war, finally an end of strife, and we have this great peace. And so, in honor of their ruler, they actually hailed Octavian as the Prince of Peace that name before and so you have what is predicted in the Old Testament hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier that the Prince of Peace was coming you have it confronting the person that the men in the world has called the Prince of Peace interacting together now when they called him the Prince of Peace that being Octavian there was all kinds of celebration lasted for many days they sacrificed many animals to all kinds of Roman gods And meanwhile, as I said, the true Prince of Peace is being born in a food trough somewhere in a small town in the middle of Israel, a king who would one day be sacrificed for the sins of the world. It's an interesting little parallel. Now, under Rome was this guy named Herod. And Herod uh, ruled from a grand palace in Jerusalem as what can be called as the governor. And he was appointed governor, but he was eventually called king of the Jews. He was actually only half Jewish, partially Jewish. He was partially basically Edomite. And he is remembered as Herod the Great. Now, 
he had absolutely zero loyalty to God, the things of God, the, the people of God. He had complete loyalty to Rome. And as the great Roman governor and the great Jewish king at this time, Herod's reign was, as I said, marked by pure allegiance to whatever Rome would have him do. And he had very grandiose, in fact, almost magnificent building programs. His family was full of all kinds of strife, and he had very harsh oppression to anyone who would be in opposition to him. So he had an interesting reign. He, um, if you read, which isn't unusual for a lot of Roman rulers at the time, he ruthlessly defended his throne. He did this by executing any religious leaders who opposed him, specifically because they didn't like that he was half Jewish. He executed and robbed the 1%, right? The really wealthy who had more money than him and just took their money because they were a threat. And then he also executed a lot of his own family members, including a couple sons, a wife, and others. He just defended his throne ruthlessly. No one was going to threaten his kingdom or his power. And so he had a group of people who were his followers called the Herodians, and they were a very political, politically savvy, politically influential group. And because they were so politically savvy, they weren't just tyrannical, though he was, he was very skilled at winning the hearts of the people. He knew how to get their loyalties. And so he built a huge temple for worship. He built a, a magnificent harbor. He improved sanitation. He built theaters and outdoor amphitheaters and even race courses for men and for race horses. As much as the people might have loathed and feared him, they also kind of liked him. He ruled with an iron fist, and then he also ruled with an open hand. And he made the people prosper. He had very high approval ratings. And any time his approval ratings dropped, what did he do? He dropped taxes 25% twice. That's a good chunk of money, right? I'll take care of it any day. Must have been Republican, no? So this is the guy that's ruling. And so we have this, sometimes we get this idea that Herod's like hated. Well, he kind of is, but he's kind of loved. Because people are doing well underneath this corrupt guy. So what happens in in the story of, of this text here is that a group of wise men, they call, and people argue over what that actually means, they come from the east, they enter into the capital of Jerusalem, and they go into this huge house, palace, that Herod has built for himself. And I tend to believe, we have this idea because there's three gifts, that there's only three men. There is a huge party of men, I believe. There are three main guys, most likely. But these guys didn't just hop on a couple camels and come. These guys had servants, money, Animals, I mean, a, a big contingent of people come into the palace area to talk with Herod. And interestingly, uh, the report of the wise man is not recorded in Luke. We only have it in Matthew. And we know that Luke interviewed everybody, most likely could have interviewed Mary and others. And this never seemed to come up or was maybe deemed unimportant to telling the story. For Luke, the only thing that was important was that Caesar Augustus was ruling. That's what he recorded. But Matthew wanted us to understand something, as I said, about Jesus. He wanted you to see, not that he really was born in this specific time, in this specific place, but that people had a specific disposition toward him, that he was the king. And so these men, some call magicians, magi, wise men, even kings, were likely uh, non-believing Gentile pagans that were skilled in philosophy or medicine or natural sciences. So 
Again, there's arguments of who these guys were. At worst, like we go, who these were the worst? They were like occult sor- sorcerers. That's like the worst extreme. The other extreme is like we want to make them the best. They're really good men who wanted to know the truth. So there's your extreme. There's somewhere maybe in between there. But their journey began. They report to Herod when they saw a star. I saw this star in the sky. And again, as you do research, you'll find that scholars argue about like what this means, and they go through the calendar, lunar calendars, and they find like it could mean this, it could mean this. And I thought it was interesting that around um, two to five BC, so where Jesus may have been born, prior to that, the first day of the Egyptian month of Missouri, which means birth of the prince, a star showed up called Sirius. We may never know, though, exactly what happened and what star it was. I think the better question is to ask ourselves why the Magi decided to come at all in response to a star. So you see a star. Let's go to Jerusalem. It seems weird. I mean, you should ask that question. Like, how do you get from star? Like, if you look out and you go, that star looks like it might be over Jerusalem. I mean, seriously? Think about that. So you go, okay, what, what brought them to Jerusalem? Of all places, why Jerusalem? So as I've been kind of looking in this, I go, okay, what, the land directly east is, is Moab. Assuming that's where they come from generally, perhaps it's elsewhere. And let's just assume that these Moabites know their Bible especially the book of Numbers, which says this in Numbers 24, verse 17, actually. I think I wrote 7, but 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. So they see a star. They know their Bible. They go, "Uh uh-oh. We are going to get crushed. We better go worship the real king. Why Jerusalem? It's where this came from. It's going to come out of Jerusalem. A scepter is going to rise. It's going to crush the forehead of Moab. So these guys go to worship whom they believe is going to be the future ruler of Judea and Moab and most likely the world. We better go find this dude. Why? Because they're smart guys. They're thinking ahead. So When the Jewish king, however, Herod, hears about this child who was born, right? These guys are like, hey, a child is born. He has a little bit of a different response. Very different response. Herod's not a fool. That's why I don't believe it's just three guys showing up. You got three wealthy guys, lots of people, lots of supplies, lots of animals. He can't just go, whatever. The child's born, sure. He's like, ooh, I can't really dismiss this. Everyone sees this, too. There's a whole contingent. The whole city is watching this big group of wealthy men that just walked in. And so he listens to them, these guys that have traveled hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles to see this king. And his reaction is very different, obviously. You can see that he's threatened. And you imagine this guy, he's got complete power. He's gotten to build whatever he wants. Rome basically has turned their backs because the people are at peace. The people are prospering. Taxes are being paid. They are happy. Rome is happy. Herod is happy. He kills anyone that's unhappy. All that he has built for himself, this beautiful world, is threatened. His throne, his wealth, his power, his fame, his comfortable life. Are suddenly, are suddenly threatened by genuine royalty. I mean, if there is a true king, and every single one of you should be asking yourselves this, if there is a true king, if there is a true ruler of this world, Herod can't just do whatever he wants with his life. And he's accountable for what he has done living in another's kingdom. 
Now, Herod is Jewish, and he's probably been raised with the knowledge of the Messiah. In other words, he knows what these men are talking about. He gathers all the priests and the pastors and everybody, get together, what is this? And he doesn't ask, what are they talking about? He says, where's the Messiah going to be born again? He's known. He's known there's been a king. How many of us live our lives as if there is no king, but when push comes to shove and our kingdoms are threatened, suddenly we're crying out, we know there's a king. Oh, shoot. Herod knows. And so the scholars point him to the prophet Micah. The scholars don't quote Micah exactly right. They open up the book of Micah and they say, oh, well, he says, but to you, O Bethlehem, they're reading in those verses, but to you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be the ruler of Israel. And they put this little, who will shepherd my people. But that's not the actual rest of the verse. The rest of the verse is, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And if you take that phrase out of Psalm 90, verse 2, that says the God the Father is from everlasting to everlasting, what that's saying is that this king, in the same way, it's from everlasting to everlasting, which means he's eternal. This isn't just some king showing up. This is the king, the eternal king, who has always ruled, who has always lived. Jesus didn't just appear in that manger. He has always existed. And Herod hears that this ruler has risen, and the priests don't tell him the rest of the part, the rest of the verse. So news about this newborn king, like, oh, there's a king, there's a king that's born, there's a king. And not only is Herod threatened, but guess what? The people are troubled, it says. It says all of Jerusalem is worried. Literally, they are filled with dread. They are close to right. They are very upset. And you go, well, isn't Israel, shouldn't they be rejoicing over the king who's coming? Shouldn't they be excited that the king that's going to defend them and provide for them and protect them? Aren't they, shouldn't they be rejoicing in the streets, not rioting? Well, think about it. If Herod is disposed as king, they lose their kingdoms too. They lose all that prosperity that they have enjoyed. However corrupt it might have come to them, I don't know how it worked out, but it's working out for me. See, allegiance to an earthly king and identification with an earthly kingdom does have its earthly benefits. It does got serious eternal consequences. Men are more than happy to disobey the true king and follow a corrupt leader if it gets them the earthly power or prosperity that they want. They'll follow anybody if it gets them that. Unlike Herod or the people, though, the wise men are not interested in coming to see what the king can give them. What benefits? They are interested in what can we give the king. Unlike Herod or the people, they're not interested in getting what they want. They want to learn what the king wants. Unlike Herod or the people, or perhaps us, they're not interested in the kingdoms that they left behind. They're interested in the one everlasting kingdom, even if that means they lose their wealth or they lose their power, or they lose their reputation, even if they lose their lives. You have two very different responses. So I want to break this down and, and blow it up a little bit to see the gospel in here, because that's what Matthew's trying to do. Matthew's not just trying to tell us a story. Matthew's not just trying to say, hey, here's the king. Matthew's trying to preach the gospel to you and to me in a very specific way, perhaps that we have ignored anytime we've read this passage before. First, let's recognize that the Magi don't come directly to Bethlehem. They actually go to Jerusalem. Why do they go to Jerusalem? Well, the prophecy says he's going to come out of Judea. 
that a king is going to rise into Judea. And so where are they going to go looking for the king? The one who has been born the king of the Jews? At the palace. They walk in and say, where's the king? Where's the one that's born? Probably ex- being, you know, expecting to go, just show me his room, please. Where's his room in the palace? And we'd love to worship him. You must be very proud that the king has been born. Right? There goes the sign. Don't, be, don't get killed by it. Instead, the wise men don't find him in the palace. They are sent several miles south to a small, somewhat insignificant town, at least in Herod's eyes, to Bethlehem. And Herod instructs them, he said, when you get there, make sure you come back and tell me so I can worship him. And we know that Herod is lying, and we hear about that next week, of how evil his intentions were. But when they leave, they really suspect nothing, it seems. Uh, they ex- just follow Herod's command. Fantastic. We'll be back in a little bit. And they go. And Bethlehem, if you look in the Old Testament, has a very rich history. This is where uh, Rachel, the mother of Joseph, was buried. This is where Ruth, remember Ruth, this is where they lived. And she married Boaz, who became the descendant of, um, or Jesus, one of Jesus' antecedents. And above all, it's David's city. It's the city of the king. And it's built on a limestone ridge, which is really important. So we put that on the shelf for a second. And when they eventually get to Bethlehem, what they find is not the typical uh, inflatable nativity scene that you might see on the average lawn. Okay? They see something very different. And all you got to do is read the text to see that. They don't arrive at a stable because they don't arrive on the night of Christ's birth. Christ was born a while ago, 18-ish months ago. The star leads them to a house, it says, where there's a little toddler named Jesus playing with his little camels. Dad's probably carved for him. And he's there with Joseph and Mary. It's been almost two years. Luke says that 30 days after Jesus was born, and we'll talk about this on Christmas Eve, but 30 days after Jesus was born, they took him back to Jerusalem. They lived in Bethlehem, right? 30 days later, take him up to Jerusalem, present him at the temple, and now they're back in Bethlehem, seemingly planning to stay there the rest of their lives, maybe make a life there. It's likely, as the wise men showed up, that Mary's probably pregnant. It doesn't say that, but we do know that Jesus had several brothers and sisters. It's likely that Joseph is trying to make money doing carpentry, which is what he later did in Nazareth as well. If they had arrived 18-ish months prior to that, they would have come to a stable that would have been a little bit different, though, than we might think. Partially, it's different than we might think with the kind of the wood pillars and the hay roof and all that stuff. Because in Bethlehem, a lot of the houses were built on top of the limestone ridge, and it's very common for them to have a cave-like stable hollowed out of the limestone on the rock below the house itself. To this day, there is a cave shown in Bethlehem, actually as the birthplace of Jesus Christ, above the church of the nativity that's been built in Bethlehem. So what are you saying? I'm saying Jesus may have been born in a cave, is what I'm saying. That's different. You're right. These men did not expect to find the man born to be king It didn't make sense to wise men. Like, that's not where the king is born. See, sin, I think, tempts us to believe that Jesus is only found in the clean and the great and the powerful. Sin does that. And that's usually the last place Jesus is found. 
honestly. Jesus was found in weakness, not strength. We see that Jesus was found in humility, not pride. Jesus was found in poverty, not riches. Jesus was found in what was dirty, not what was clean. Jesus was found in great need, not in great comfort. And quite frankly, these are all the things that we try to avoid. Discomfort, poverty, dirtiness, weakness. Why would I want to pursue those things? Jesus is found in the places we don't want to go. That me may not think to him. Jesus, according to his own words, is found in the jails. Jesus is found in the hospital. Jesus is found in the low-income schools. Jesus is found in the homeless camps, two of them in Marysville. Jesus is found in the broken homes on your street with the people that have all the arguments that you don't dare go down and knock on or invite into your home. Jesus is in the cold weather shelters. Jesus is in the dirty and the humble and the broken and the needy and the smelly and the marginalized and the unwanted and the unexpected. And if Jesus is there, that's where we need to be. And so my question for you is, when was the last time you were there? Because a lot of us really like sitting in the palace thinking about Jesus, and Jesus ain't there. And I am convicted at times more when I read texts like this, that as we grow as families and build our homes, and as we grow and build this church, we must be careful of building such beautiful and clean and polished and pleasant homes and churches that Jesus is no longer found there. The king isn't always found in the palace. The king is not always found in the palace. But then when they do find Jesus, they have a very particular reaction to him, don't they? It's not, what? Ooh, no way. It's not that. From the reaction, the contrast to Herod's reaction next week where he begins to slaughter children, you see what genuine worship looks like from these men. We see what genuine worship of the king looks like. And I know many of us who claim to be Christian would say, I worship Jesus, or maybe I worship Jesus on Sunday. Let me challenge you a little bit because I'm not sure we understand what worship is. And we see it in these three wise men who were Gentile pagans and are now worshiping the king. First thing we see, and this is so cool, is that worship is joyful. Let's be honest. A lot of you guys look sad, okay? A lot of Christians are sad sourpusses all the time when they have the reason to be most joyful of anyone. And we're a sad lot. There's no joy exuding. People go, why would I want to be part of that? You look miserable. Look at these guys. I don't believe there's any such thing as a lukewarm reaction to Jesus. There's ne- You read scripture. There's no one who engages with Jesus and goes, eh, whatever. You either run from him You either want to kill him, or you worship him. Worship begins, I believe, with feelings, yes, emotions of joy. The Bible says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, okay? Now check it out. You'll notice that they began to rejoice when the star points to the house where Jesus is at. They're not even with Jesus yet. The idea of just being with Jesus fills them with joy. It's like, oh, there it is, guys. Look at that star. And I don't know what that was like. That was probably pretty cool, right? It wasn't like, I think it's that one, right? It's like, like, holy smoke. That's awesome. 
And so they are exceedingly joyful at the idea of being in the presence of the king. And you can interpret that violent excitement, right? It's not like, it's like, There we go. Violently excited. Exceedingly joyful. When was the last time you rejoiced exceedingly about anything outside of a Seahawks game? When was the last time you rejoiced exceedingly about something of the Lord? And I'm talking about just the idea of it. Rejoiced exceedingly about the idea of reading your Bible. Oh, gosh, I don't want to think about that. I'm going, oh, I can't wait to read my Bible. can't wait to spend some time with the Lord. When's the last time prior to Sunday you look forward to gathering with God's people? The idea of it excited you. The idea of, like, we're going to be in the presence of the king in a unique way that fewer people in the world do the more. I mean, it's all. Oh, I can't wait to see my brothers and sisters. I can't wait to sing with my brothers and sisters. I can't wait to hear God's word proclaimed. When was the last time you rejoiced exceedingly about that? No one wants you to fake it. I'm not saying, like, man, we need to manufacture some fake joy. I'm not saying that. But it's likely that if you are not exceedingly rejoicing, not every week, but ever, perhaps you don't actually understand what's going on. Perhaps you don't understand why we're here at all. Perhaps you don't understand why you read your Bible and why you pray. Perhaps you don't know what it's like to be or even think about being in the presence of the King. So worship's joyful. Worship goes beyond joy, right? They they get to this place of humility. I think sometimes you can get crazy joyful, right? And I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but like, I'll just call it charismatic freakiness, where it's so joyful and so emotional and so unrestrained. You're like, what is going I'm just looking at you going, what is wrong with you? As opposed to going, man, that guy's really joyful about Jesus. Because I think what begins with joy, guess what? It doesn't continue like that. It actually goes to a place of humility. They enter the house, right? The idea of entering the house is filling them with joy. They enter the house, and what happens? They're suddenly in the presence of the king. And who's the presence? A toddler. It's not like they walk in, and Jesus is on this little, like, wood high chair throne. He's like, come in, wise men, Right? He's probably just playing, but they see him. They see him, and they're in the presence of the king, the toddler king, but in their presence. And what did they do when they saw the child? They didn't have conversations with him. Tell us about the birth. What was that like? Oh, really? Like They woke in and go, oh, my Lord, and they're on their faces. They're on their faces before a toddler king. They didn't start to sing songs. They didn't start to proclaim all kinds of things. They couldn't say anything at all. These grown, wealthy, educated men humbled themselves on their faces before an 18-month-old king. They didn't think about it. They didn't wonder what people would think. When these men finally get to meet Jesus, they get on their hands before talking. From all appearances, they probably look like fools. But I'd probably argue that genuine worship of the king is always going to look foolish to a world that's full of people who think they're king. But when you are in the presence of the one true king, there is more than emotions. It does begin there. There is a mindful, deep recognition of who he is, what he has done. There's an overwhelming sense of your own unworthiness and his worthiness all at the same time. That's how you know you're in the presence of the king. 
king who would die. They're in awe of God, and it humbles them. But it doesn't stop there. What we see is the, the worship of the Lord leads them to give of the gifts that they brought. And I'm not sure if they plan to give the gifts. I'm not certain of that. It doesn't say that they got the gifts that they planned to you know, prepare for him. It just says they began to give him gifts. And I think it's incredibly important for us to see that worship precedes giving. That giving is birthed out of worship. That it is certainly part of worship. It is part of worship. Your giving to the Lord is part of worship, but it is not exclusively worship. The thought of God's presence excites us. It should. The experience of God's presence humbles us, but being in the presence of God moves His children to open up their treasure to Him. Worship is tangible. You can feel it. You can touch it. You can see it. It's not just of the mind. If your worship, for those who claim to know Christ, for those who would declare, I worship Jesus, if your worship does not result in a tangible sacrifice, whether that is your money, whether that is your time, whether that's your energy, whether that's your reputation, whether that's the position of power you could have had, if if your worship of God does not result in tangible sacrifice, it isn't genuine worship. You may be really excited about Jesus. You may recognize I am a sinner saved by Jesus. But if that's where it stops and it never goes to a place of willful action, it's not worship. The question is, have you opened your treasure to God? Or have you withheld from Him? I don't know. God does. And that's the only one that really counts. And you can be really self-delusional to believe that you have when you have not. And I'm certainly not talking, make sure you give today. I'm not talking about that. That's certainly part of it. But don't suddenly... Let that legal defense team dismiss the rest of your life because you've given or you gave for whatever reason you want to need to justify the fact you really have not opened up the treasure of your life to him. Worship is more than emotional feelings and it is even more than intellectual recognition of who God is. There is volitional, willful action. We give in response to who he is, not to what we can get from him. The toddler king can give these guys squat diddly. Why right, it's not like they're like, here you go, will you bless us with your rattle? Right? That's not gonna happen. The toddler look, you can't give nothing to him. He's gonna give him some gold. He's like, eh, playing with it. Joseph's gonna be pretty excited. That's a great gift. I'll take that for you, son. Right? We don't give to God because of of what we think we're going to get from Him. We give to God our time and our money and our energy and our talents and everything because of who He is. Because He is worthy. And if you're withholding your time because of whatever reason you have decided, this is more worthy than God. My time to myself or to my blank is more worthy than my time for God. It blows my mind, and I don't want to throw in, I'm not using any names. It blows my mind that we have a cold weather shelter here. We have seven, I don't know how many churches participating in it, and we are having to beg someone to run it on Saturdays for our own church. For maybe twice a year, three times a year, that no one could step up and say that. And you go, really, your time's that valuable? that's just a little smidgen. Like, the times when we put 
needs in the, in the church for volunteers for Kids Road to preach the gospel to little kids and they see the same people serving over and over and over again. Like, really? What is more worthy to me? Because I'm not saying those kids are worthy, though they are. I'm saying that God is worthy and so you should. I'm not trying to make guilt trip. I really am not. And if you're feeling a tickle, hey, that's the Holy Spirit. That ain't me. I didn't use your name. All right. But I do think it's important as we close it out here to look at the gifts, and I will do very quickly with this, because no one but Matthew records the story of these wise men, and I believe that these men give gifts that are costly, but Matthew could have just as easily said he just gave them costly gifts. And we leave here going, all right, we're supposed to give costly gifts to the Lord. But he gets very specific. Matthew wants us to see what the gifts say, not just about the men, but what they say about the one who receives them. To that end, he identifies exactly the kind of gifts they are. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What are those? Real quickly, gold's a gift for a king. It is the most valuable metal known to men, at least at that time. Frankincense is a gift for a priest. It's the incense that's used for sacrifices at the temple and for other things, but it was used for that, where priests atone for the sins of the people. And myrrh is the gift for one who's going to die because it embalms bodies. So Matthew used these gifts really to preach the gospel to the world because they're not recorded anywhere else. And like I said, he could have just used gifts, but he gets very specific. Why? These men are worshiping the man that was born to be king, the man who would save men from their sins, and the man who was going to die for them in their place. He wanted to preach the gospel. This was the first altar call where men met Jesus face to face. That men worshipped before the altar, before Jesus' feet. And then men gave all they had, even their lives. The wise men had found their king. They worshipped the king, and then they obeyed the king, right? Their intention was to go back to whom they called the king. They were going to go back to Herod, and Verse 12 says, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they had to be warned because they were going to go back. They departed to their own country by another way. So if you hear nothing else, hear this point. The truth of God leads to communion with God, which leads us on to mission for God. Having sworn allegiance to the true king, they disobey the worldly king. They return to their own evil, pagan, believing country. What do you think they did there? Just go about their business with their life? Heck no. They went back to their own country and they lived out the rule of the king, the true king. And so we end with this question, and that is, where is and what is your own country? When we leave here, when we leave this place, we all have a place to return to. We gather together here as the family of God, but we don't just stay here and hang out. We all have a place. We all have a job. We all have a group of friends. We all have a family. We all have a neighborhood. I mean, it is easy. It is easy to worship in the presence of God when you are gathered with God's people and you feel the presence of the King. That's easy. This is easy to sing songs to Jesus here. Easy to proclaim his word. Easy to serve in different places. Easy. What about your own country? Most of our lives do not take place among God's people. And God does not want us to hide out in Jesus' house all It wasn't like the wise men said, hey, I'll just put a cot here. Maybe we'll build a little place on the outside. We can just worship you all the time, Jesus. They leave. Jesus wants them to leave. He wants them to return to their own country and live out the rule of Jesus where they're from. So very simply, we see Christ. We worship Christ. 
We live for and under the rule of Christ wherever we go, asking Jesus the Master, what would you have us do here? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to give? How do you want me to serve? He is worthy of my worship, and he is worthy to have my name and life spent for his name. Those are the questions we ask after we worship. We go. Some of you here need to see Christ. Some of you here have never met Jesus face to face. Some of you here are are believing that you are Lord of your life, King of your kingdom, not realizing that there's a real Lord and a real King who's really going to return one day, and you best deal with them now so you don't have to deal with them then. And the only way to deal with them is to confess that, honestly, you are a sinner, that he died in your place for your sins, that you might have new life in his kingdom with him. And instantly you become a citizen of a new kingdom. Some of you need to see Christ, and some of you have seen Christ, and you need to genuinely worship Christ. You think you're worshiping, but you're not. You're withholding from it. You're withholding your time. You're withholding your money. You're withholding your service. You're withholding your energy. You're withholding your gifts. You've been brought into a church, a gathering, to worship together, to do something for the Lord, and you're withholding from them, and therefore you're withholding from all of us. Some of you need to actually start worshiping. To get excited, exceedingly joyful about what God has done. And let that joy take you to a place of humility going, Oh my Lord, who am I? Take me. Where you begin to open up your treasure. To bless one another and to bless this world that's lost around us. And some of us, perhaps a lot of us who've been Christians for a long time and are getting really excited about hanging out in Jesus' house and not actually going out into the world, some of us need to get on mission. Some of you need to get on mission. And there's plenty of places to do it. And you'll notice that the wise men didn't wait for Jesus to grow up to do it. And so I would call you there ain't no growing that needs to happen. Just get going. Now is the time. Now is the time to believe. Now is the time to give. Now is the time to go because Jesus is going to come back sooner than later. And I want to use every breath we have to do all that we can for his sake. And I want to do it with you. I pray you want to do it. Three different stories.